uh, with Pastor Keith recovering from COVID-19, I am jumping in out of the bullpen this morning. And in some ways I can understand maybe God's, maybe God's purposes in this because we stand on the brink of one of the biggest milestones that we've ever encountered as a church. Later this week, Keystone's elders will announce our recommendation for Keystone's next preaching pastor. That's a big deal. After 28 years, Keystone will welcome only its second preaching pastor. Since 1993, meeting in a Dutch town and country's bar, for the last 28 years, Pastor Keith has been the primary preaching voice of Keystone Church. We've got some young adults who are nearing their 30s for whom they have only ever experienced Pastor Keith. Even for me, apart from my four years at Messiah College, Pastor Keith has been my preacher for 22 years since I was 17 years old. Pastor Keith has been here so long, I would fully understand if you thought that Keystone was actually Keithstone Church. The two have been inseparable for a long, long time. And this Thursday, the elders meet to discuss who will be his successor. Whenever I ask new people at Keystone, what's brought you here? What's kept you here at Keystone, the number one answer consistently that I have heard for uh, as long as I have been lead pastor, and even as youth pastor, the answer that they give is this, Keith's preaching. Keith's preaching is why I have made Keystone my home church. And I fully understand that. In fact, when I was in high school, high school Brandon made Keystone his home church Keystone because of Pastor Keith's preaching. Might have been a little bit of the high school uh, girls who I found to be attractive, but if I was honest, Keith's preaching is really the reason that I started and have stayed. And I'm guessing there are a lot of us here who are in these seats week in, week out, because we crave the word of God that comes when Pastor Keith preaches. Uh, towards the end of 2021, I will uh, provide to you my uh, seven most profound reasons that Pastor Keith's ministry and preaching has influenced my life and ministry. And as we sit here, due to his longevity and faithfulness in ministry, it means that we are surrounded by his legacy our unswerving commitment to reach the next generation, our gospel centrality, our mission, mission mindfulness. These are all elements of Keith's influence over decades of faithful ministry. And this Thursday, the elders will vote, make decisions, consider what will our future look like. If I've not said it, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's a big deal because passing the baton from any pastor to another is fraught with challenges. Founding pastors in particular are notorious to replace, notoriously difficult to replace. You couple the fact that Pastor Keith has been here for as long as he has been with the fact that he's been 
faithful to God and beloved by the congregation for as long as Keystone has been in existence. And you create a recipe where the thought is, can Keith just stay a little longer? Can Keith just stay a little longer? Nobody is going to, in fact, I can tell you this, unless we hire another man who's 68 years old, we will not find another man with Keith's level of experience. Whomever we pick has big shoes to fill. And what I want to do this morning in preparation for this week ahead, the announcement that will come, the eventual congregation meeting that will come, the eventual overlap of Keith with his successor, to prepare us for a church, I want to share with you from the scriptures a handful of truths that have helped me about succession, maybe in general, but first in regards to Keith and Keystone. Because to be fair, it's, it's a little daunting for me. I've been on staff for 15 years and the thought of Keith no longer being a staple of Keystone feels strange. I've not known a, a Keystone without Keith. But I believe what God has shown me in these scriptures will be beneficial for us as we navigate the waters of succession. And this is a journey that all of us who call Keystone home are going to need to walk together. And maybe as a secondary purpose this morning, I think that these lessons will apply for all of us, regardless of whether you are personally looking for a pastoral successor, which I'm guessing you're not. Because all of us hold positions of leadership, which we will need to pass on to someone else. And that's especially true for us who are disciple makers. The mark of a disciple maker is a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. And so all of us are in the business of succession, whether we want it or not. And I think some of the things that we have for this morning can help us. And so let's turn to the Lord one more time and ask for him to be the one who speaks to us, to encourage us, to direct us to a kind of truth, a kind of anchor that would be a hope for our souls. So Father, we turn our face to you again because we want to bless your name forever and ever. Lord, to you belong all wisdom and might. You change the times and the seasons. You set up kings and remove kings. You give wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. Father, we turn to you because you reveal deep and hidden things. You know what's in the darkness. You are full of light. And we worship you because you need no successor. Father, you have an eternal kingdom. And you reign forever and ever. And we confess that we are not like you. And as we look into the future that is unknown, we want to rest in the truth that you are infinitely powerful and infinitely wise and infinitely good and everlasting in your presence. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us in a way that would bring peace to anxiety, that would cause us to no longer tremble in fear at the unknown, but that with great confidence we might join you in your mission to serve the next generation, to advance your gospel for years and years to come. 
So Father, I ask for your blessing on me that I might speak as one who speaks the very words of God. And I pray that you would help us as a church to hear your voice amidst my own. Father, lead us this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible is full of succession stories, and we could examine a whole host of them. I have a little fear as I address some of these because I don't want us to get caught in the habit of taking descriptive texts and turning them into prescriptive texts. In other words, just because the Bible says that something happened doesn't mean that that's something that we should pursue. In fact, if we looked at the stories that are listed in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we would find a soap opera saga of drama of good and bad succession stories. And I might say, even though I have precedence to take an example, maybe from the great prophet Elijah, I can tell you that there are certain parts of the Bible that are in there to describe what happened, not to describe to prescribe to me what a line item in our children's ministry budget should be. In other words, I'm not going to use 2 Kings 2.24 as reason for Brooke to put discipline bears into our kids' ministry budget. In fact, if you don't know this story, that's a fun one for you to go and look into uh, to realize not everything in the Bible is what we should necessarily call ourselves to. However, there are certain themes that run throughout the scriptures that when repeated enough, we see the kind of wisdom that comes when a group of people take God's message and God's mission and package it together into a baton and then pass it off to the next generation. Look at some examples here. In 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, David gives his final words to Solomon. You can read them along. When David's time drew near, uh, uh, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, "I'm about to go away, uh, go the way of all the earth. Be strong, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses." that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David knew his time was coming And so before he died, he passed the baton to his son, Solomon. You might look uh, at Moses and Joshua. Dr. Hoffmeyer preached a message uh, several weeks ago where he described God commissioning Joshua. And we can see what God said to Joshua as he takes the baton from Moses in Joshua 1, 1 to 2 and 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. God said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, 
go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Be very strong and very courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Moses knew that his time was coming. And so he passed the baton to Joshua. Even in the New Testament, we see the apostle Paul doing the same thing with his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul sends word to Timothy and says, you then my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul did not see an end of the gospel mission. And so he wanted to invest the mission into the hands of faithful men who would entrust to faithful men who were able to teach others. There is a succession baton that goes with the gospel ministry. And Jesus might have been the one who started it. This is a familiar text. Towards the very end of his ministry, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, here are his words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love those succession stories. I love that there were faithful men who saw that the ministry that God had given to them was not to terminate with them, but to continue well after them. And so they pass to the next generation. But there is one succession story that has haunted me my entire ministry. There's one particular story that has stuck with me. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to Joshua 2, 6 through 11. That's where we'll spend most of our focus looking at. And in Joshua 2, what we have, or I'm sorry, Judges 2, 6 through 11, we have the end of Joshua's ministry. He has led the conquest into the promised land making good in some sense on the promise that God made to Abraham close to 500 years ago. God promised that he would have a people in God's land, obeying God's law, and enjoying God's blessing. And from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, to Egypt, 400 years in slavery, Moses, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the time in the wilderness... The conquest with Joshua we now find in Judges 2, what Joshua has to say. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel 
went each to his inheritance, to the possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. I've read that text dozens of times. And every time I think, what, what happened? What happened that one generation, a generation who knew the Lord and what he had done for Israel and served the Lord throughout their lives, that there would arise a generation, sounds like right afterwards, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel and then did evil in the sight of the Lord. I ask, what happened? In succession language, this is a succession failure. One generation served God, the next didn't. And this is not what I want for Keystone when Keith departs. And I'm guessing this is not actually what you want for your ministry roles or your leadership roles, whenever it is that you step down. And so I want to see, is there anything that we can glean from this story? Any lessons that we can learn? And I'm going to draw our attention to two. Two big ideas for this morning. I know I typically have three, just two this morning. The first thing that I see in this text is that every leadership position is a temporary position. Every leadership calling is a temporary calling. You know what's true of all of the Bible leaders? They're not leading today. Moses, dead. Joshua, dead. David, dead. Paul, dead. Jesus, hmm, risen. Nonetheless, all of them are not currently leading in their ministry role. And this is true for everyone. We have a specific mission for a specific time. And when that time is done, someone else will take position. It's a temporary role. And I want you to follow me on this. Think about presidents, for example. And I don't care if you're thinking about presidents of countries or companies or clubs. All presidents have a temporary leadership assignment. And you might say, well, yeah, of course, they have term limits. Term limits explicitly remind us that this particular leadership assignment is a temporary one. It does not last forever. You might have a president who resigns or retires. 
a reminder to us that this president leadership position is a temporary one. A president might go on maternity leave or on medical leave. A reminder that it was a position for a season of time, not forever. And frankly, even if you do have a position as a dictator for life, eventually death will prove that your leadership assignment was a temporary assignment. Because after you die, someone is taking your position. Your company is not going to set up a shrine in your office to you and then let all of your work just go into the hands of the waste paper basket. Someone else is going to start doing what you're doing. And whether you are a volunteer or whether you're paid for a particular leadership position, when you go, someone will take the baton from you. The goal in this is a peaceful transfer of power, peaceful transition from one administration to the next. A good transition will mean that the organization continues in a positive direction. A bad transition is going to create a power vacuum or chaos. Presidents have a temporary leadership position. Parents, parents, and I'm thinking biological parents. Parents, you have a small window of time in order for you to lead your children. We have a small season of time for us to lead before it is no longer our opportunity, no longer our responsibility, no longer our authority to lead. In fact, the the symbolism that I find when I perform weddings and I see a father give away his daughter to me is emblematic of the fact that parents have a temporary leadership assignment. And moms, I, I know how much you want to hold on to your role as mother. In fact, your patient, long-suffering commitment to your kids is what makes you so good at what you do. But motherhood is a temporary leadership assignment. Eventually, our kids are going to need to manage their own finances, prepare their own food, choose their own friends. And their ability to do those things well is largely going to be determined by our ability to transfer that authority and instruction to them. A generation that does not know how to manage their finances, does not know how to feed themselves, doesn't know how to have conversations with people who differ from them. A generation doesn't know how to hold a job. This is a generation who serves as evidence, as an indictment against us as parents who have failed to do our job to adequately pass the baton from one generation to the next. In fact, one of the questions that I have for uh, moms and dads on the notes section that I passed out is, moms and dads, what, what are the things that you want to make sure that you pass down to your sons and daughters? As I'm preparing for fatherhood, there, there is a list in my mind of things that I'm excited to be able to instruct our little daughter in things that I want to show her, things that I want to teach her, things that I want to encourage her in. In fact, whenever I work with interns in particular, I, I use four E's. Uh, the four E's, I think of uh, exposure. What do I want them to see? I think about education. What do I want them to, to learn? I think about experience. You know, what is it that I want them to actually learn how to do? And then I'm thinking about their heart. I'm thinking about what kind of encouragement, what do I want them to feel? 
because I know that as an intern, it is a small window of time. It lasts three months, it maybe lasts six months, it might last a year, but at some point, I'm going to send that intern on to someone else, hopefully for him to do a job well. Parents, your parenting time is just a phase. By recognizing that all leadership positions are temporary positions, I'm hoping that you don't miss that phase. And maybe just finally, as we consider the fact that all leadership positions are temporary leadership positions, think about parents, spiritually speaking, thinking as disciple makers. Our time to make disciples is narrow. No one is making disciples in heaven. In fact, I might say that God doesn't have grandchildren. God has children. And so as I think about my ministry at Keystone, I'm thinking I had three years with junior hires when I was youth pastor, four years with senior hires. I had five years-ish for the young adults. And in that time, trying to think, how can I use the small window of time that I have to teach and train and model what it looks like to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ before they aged out of junior high, aged out of senior high, aged out of young adults. C.T. Studd has a quote that um, hung up in my bathroom, uh, in my house in the city. C.T. Studd says, only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's important for us to recognize that we have a limited window to our calling so that we can start preparing now. So that we can take advantage of the time that we have now. Farmers know this. They know I need to get the seed in the soil in this particular time. And if I don't, I've missed my window for harvest that year. They know that there are certain days or maybe certain weather conditions where it's good to make hay. There are certain times to strike when the iron's hot. There are certain times to mold the candle while it's still warm. There are certain times to get a shamrock shake. And if you miss that window, you have missed it. And so I want us to take advantage of the time that we have to prepare for the future. If we know that every leadership position is a temporary leadership position, we can invest in tomorrow, today. There's a saying among some pastors, and I, I know it's a little bit morbid, but whatever, it is the industry standard. Uh, pastors will ask one another, what's your plan if you get hit by a bus? And we've had that conversation at Keystone. What, what happens if one of us gets hit by a bus? And we might think, well, that's never going to happen. And isn't that it? Like, we just don't think that day is ever actually going to come. What's interesting is that one of the candidates that we interviewed for preaching pastor... He became a lead pastor because when he was serving as youth pastor, his lead pastor was in a car accident and passed away in that moment. No more time to prepare the youth pastor to move into the lead pastor position, just in that moment, everyone recognized that every leadership position is a temporary position. No guarantee of tomorrow. Which leads me to my next point. Successful transition or successful succession, to use the tongue twister, requires both 
replicating, and receiving. Successful succession requires both replicating and receiving. The scene that we find in Judges was a long time coming. I mentioned maybe 500 years from when the promises were made to Abraham up through the time where Joshua had in some ways arrived and allocated the certain regions within the promised land that these people would go to. And and God had worked in a way to make sure that one generation would pass to the next. Moses invested in Joshua. And you can find all the ways that he did it and just read the latter half of Exodus to see that Moses prepared to replicate himself in Joshua. And Joshua received the call from Moses. That was a successful transition. Moses replicated, Joshua received. Successful succession requires both. Moses received the message from God, replicated it in Joshua. Joshua received the message from Moses. We can read in um, Joshua chapter 24, how he ended up speaking a message to replicate it in the successors, his elders. The elders received the message from Joshua and then a breakdown. Because what we find is that generation, those elders who would have heard the words from Joshua, heard the commands, eventually died. And the next generation grew up knowing neither the Lord nor what he had done and did evil in the sight of the Lord. In 2009, I preached a message on this topic and, and thought about what, what might have happened. I had to speculate because we don't know. We don't know where the breakdown happened. Did the breakdown happen in the replication? Did the elders not replicate themselves in the next generation? In other words, did they not look for who to pass the baton on to in the next generation? Or did the next generation not receive it? Did they reject the message? And in 2009, I I thought about some possible scenarios why people might not do the work of succession to replicate and receive. And I said, well, maybe there wasn't time. I mean, after all, Joshua had just released them to their new land. And I thought maybe it took a lot of time to build their cities or maybe it took a lot of time to begin investing in their homes or in their new startup businesses. Maybe there was not time for that generation to invest in the next generation. And I thought maybe there wasn't enough time for the next generation because they were so busy in the promised land, not having to worry about manna or looking for water, but now they were able to play sports. Maybe they were able uh, to get involved with Boy Scouts. Maybe there were lots of youth groups that were going on. And they were just so busy that they had no time to actually receive what the elders were trying to invest in. So maybe it was time. And I thought, well, maybe too, it was because they just got too comfortable. After all, they had just spent years in the wilderness, uncomfortably moving from place to place, never really sure what they were going to eat, never really sure where they were going, never sure when they were going to arrive. And now they had. They had gotten to the point where God had said, I will give you land. I will give you a place to call home. And now that they're home, they're thinking, this is nice. Now that we're comfortable, now we can invest in luxury. 
Now we can invest in leisure. I said, maybe they just kicked up their feet. Maybe they spent the remainder of their days, that generation of elders, maybe they spent the last days of their lives with their heels kicked up on their lazy boy. Maybe they spent time traveling. Maybe they worked on their golf handicap. Maybe they found a seashell collection. Or maybe they were so committed to their beach house on the Mediterranean, maybe so infatuated with traveling to some warmer climate that they just lost all vision for their responsibility to pass the message and the mission on to the next generation. It was just too comfortable where they were. And maybe the, the, the next generation was too comfortable too. They, they met these foreign people and they started making friends with them. And they realized that the message and the mission that their elders were trying to convey them to was not popular with the existing crowds that they were. And so it wasn't popular. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't favorable for them to embrace and receive the message. And so maybe they rejected. We don't know. For all we know, that generation of elders did get hit by a bus and did not have any time to actually invest in the next generation. And the whole, we don't know. What we do know is this. One generation grew up knowing the Lord and what he had done and served the Lord all the days of their life. And then another generation grew up and knew neither the Lord nor what he had done and did what was evil. Things fall apart when we forget God. Things fall apart quickly. I'm not surprised that we find the atrocities that we do in the book of Judges. D.A. Carson has a quote that I've used several times before. And he's actually quoting a colleague of his, Paul Hybert. And Paul is, in some ways, analyzing his Mennonite roots. And he makes what is, to be fair, a, a simplistic caricature, maybe, but D.A. Carson finds nonetheless very helpful for us. And before I show it, I, I need to um, preface it with the fact that I am not speaking just about Mennonites. I got in hot water because I didn't make it overtly clear that this is not just a Mennonite thing, but perhaps a whole American evangelical um, issue, maybe, God forbid, even a keystone issue. But take a look. D.A. Carson is quoting Dr. Hybert and says, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there are certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments, the following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. I think, well, that's one way that it can happen. One generation believes, the next generation assumes, the following generation denies. Without faithful replication and reception, every generation will slowly drift away. God doesn't have grandchildren. The only way that people gain faith is by God. John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did, 
did receive him, who did receive Jesus, that is who believed, to everyone who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children who were born and pay attention, who were born, became children, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The next generation of believers are made believers, not of blood. Christianity is not passed from one generation to another by birth, physical birth. It's not in our bloodline, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't that the next generation just needed to will themselves into it. Or that they decided to on the basis of threat by the will of man. The way that we become believers is by God causing us to be born again. And what that means is that every generation needs to discover the gospel afresh. We cannot lean on our current generation's faith or faithfulness to ensure that the next generation will know and love and serve the Lord. And I'm hoping that you might hear how we've tried to embed replication language into our mission at Keystone. You'll note that the phrase that gets repeated most often is not make disciples, period. We want to be a little bit more particular in the type of disciple that we are making. We want to make disciples who make disciples. And I think you can make the argument, because Jesus did, that just the the mission of making disciples would hold fast so long as we understood that one of the things that makes a disciple an actual disciple is that that is making disciples. A disciple is a true disciple when it's making disciples. So I can understand why you might say, I'm fine with just saying make disciples. Because when I say make disciples, all disciples make disciples. We want to make it more clear. So we say, at Keystone, we're on a mission to make disciples who make disciples. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Replication is built into the DNA of what we do. And that's why we have an unswerving commitment to reach the next generation. We don't want our ministry to die when we die. If the ministry is just to make a particular type of disciple, and that disciple is one who's trying to be more holy, be more godly, be more loving, but has no interest in making disciples of the next generation, we have failed to do our work to make genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Genuine disciples make disciples who make disciples. The idea of what that looks like, if lived out faithfully, Albert Einstein would call the eighth wonder of the world. He loved the concept of compound interest. I don't know how much you understand about compound interest. Maybe your grandfather sat you down when you were four years old and said, if you put in $20 a day for the next three years, you're going to be a multimillionaire by the time you're 25 or something. Mine did that. And I never fully kind of understood it. But what I want to try to do is in some ways, replication is like that in the church. And so imagine if you would, that you have... um, a job where you get $100 that you are able to save and you take that $100 every month and you stick that $100 underneath your mattress 
Every month, $100 underneath your mattress. Every, dollar, every, every month, $100 underneath your mattress. And you do that every month for 30 years. You will have $36,000 saved, which frankly, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. That's a, a nice amount of savings. What compound interest would, would say is, instead of taking that $100 and sticking it underneath your mattress, you, 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 you take it and you put it in a, a bank or you invest it in, in some way and, and you tell your, your money, money, for every dollar that's in here, I want you to make money too. Every dollar, let's say, dollar, I want you to make 10 cents this next month. And the next dollar, I want you to make 10 cents this next month. And so you take that $100 and you invest it and tell your money, money, I want you to make money. And so the next month you have the money that you invested, this month's amount that you've invested, as well as all of the dollars. Well, at that point, probably cents, all of the cents that you keep. And every little cent that comes into your money holdings, you say, I want you to make money. I I want my money to make money. And you do that for 30 years. You will have $225,000. That's the magic of compound interest. It's an exponential type. In fact, maybe you can visualize it better if you see. The straight line on the bottom, that's you making disciples for 30 years. That exponential curve is you making disciples who make disciples for 30 years. The difference is huge. And here's what's wild. If after 30 years you die or you stop working and never worked again, but you continued to tell your money, money, I want you to make money. Even if you don't invest a single cent more. And look at the line. You make no more investment Eventually, after another 30 years, you have $4.5 million, long after you're gone. It's because we've invested in the miracle of replication. This is God's plan to change the world. And if replication was built into our DNA as a church, disciples who make disciples who make disciples, preachers who make preachers who make preachers, teachers who make teachers who make teachers, worship leaders who make worship leaders who make worship leaders, volunteers who make volunteers that make volunteers. We would have so many disciples, preachers, worship leaders, volunteers, teachers, than we knew what to do with. That's what has been happening around the world when we talk about expansions of revival we find that replication has exponential effects. And so I want to talk briefly as we get ready to conclude on some next steps. Well, what what can we do? Step one. Ask yourself, what what has God called you to, to do and to be? What has God called you to do and to be? And so for me, it's helpful for me to think about uh, starting with my relationship with God and working out to, to the peripheries of my life. And so the, the first thing, the central part, God has called me to be a disciple maker. That's my first calling. Second calling, God has called me to be a husband to Bethany. Then, then God has called me to be a father to a daughter coming in June. 
Outside that, God has called me to be a pastor and an elder at Keystone Church. And within all of these roles are several responsibilities that God is calling me to currently, for a season, serve in leadership. To, to do certain things, to be a certain type of man. Maybe your list includes volunteering as a coach or serving uh, in some ministry. What has God called you to do and to be? Step two, who are you replicating yourself with? Who are you replicating yourself with? That might be easy if you're a parent. You can probably identify your successors. Those are those little ankle biters living in your house, eating your food. Those are the ones that God has called you to invest in as your successors. You don't need to do a nationwide succession planning search to find who your successor is. They're, they're probably right around you. You're, you might actually already be working with them. You probably know who they are already. I've heard people say, what you need to look for in a good successor is someone fat. And what they mean by that is find someone faithful. Someone who's already there doing the work, showing up. Someone who's available. Someone who's not overly scheduled, too busy. Who has great aspirations, but no real ability to put their words where their time is. And then teachable. You might not have the person who knows exactly what to do. They might not have all the skills at this point, but they're hungry to learn. If you can find someone fat, that's who you should invest in. So maybe the question should be, who's someone that you know that's fat? And what I mean is, who do you know that might be able to do what you do? And I'm not talking about your mom. I'm talking about who can you be investing in that will do what you do and be what you are when you are no longer serving in that temporary leadership position. Please me to step three. How are you equipping others to do and be like you? How? How are you equipping others? The easiest thing might be to just let people follow you around. That's what Moses did with Joshua. We can read about Joshua and Moses and, and Moses grooming Joshua to be ready for leadership, beginning all the way back in Exodus 17. Giving him a certain smaller assignments, not leading an entire nation, just, you know, taking certain leadership responsibilities. Moses brought Joshua along to the mountain when he received the Ten Commandments, Exodus 24. Joshua watched Moses get angry at idolatry and smash those Ten Commandments in Exodus 32. Joshua stuck close. We can see just how close in Exodus 33. Because we know more often it's what's caught than what's taught that sticks with us. It's more often what's caught by just watching, observing, seeing how things are done than necessarily what's taught in the classroom. That was, that was Jesus' plan to equip his disciples. He just said, come, follow me. Come see what I do. Come watch how I interact. This is discipleship that's built kind of on rubbing off one another. That's why your kids talk like you. 
Because whether you know it or not, you are in some ways invested in the next generation. The question is, is that what you want to invest in? Is that how you want to be investing in? And I'll just say, it's not too late. Maybe you have not thought about passing the baton and I'll just say, it's not too late. If you're not dead, God's not done. The exponential effect of replication is huge. Now to conclude, I want to explain to you briefly why I'm not worried about Keystone's future. Because we are on the brink of the biggest milestone that we've encountered. And if I've not said so already, it is a big deal. And I'm not worried about it. I have four reasons why. First, we have a faithful leader. Pastor Keith loves Keystone. He's had his eye on succession for over a decade. Discussions about who would fill his shoes began all the way back in 2010. They heated up in 2017 and really ramped up just in the last 18 months or so. But he knows that his position is a temporary position and he wants to see Keystone thrive after he's gone. And I can testify that as he transitioned from senior pastor to preaching pastor and allowed me to take his leadership of the church in 2014 to go from youth pastor to lead pastor, he has been a gracious and supportive champion for me serving as lead pastor at Keystone the last seven years. I have full confidence that Keith is going to be a faithful champion, gracious, supportive champion of the successor who will begin to fill his shoes. Second reason, I believe that we will have a, a faithful successor. The elders have done their due diligence meaning that we have looked at a nationwide search, in some ways a global church. We had 85 people from around the country and to the around the world in some cases apply to be Keystone's next preaching pastor. And the elders just didn't pick a name out of the hat and said, we've, we found him. God has revealed it by a lottery. We, we've, we've vetted them. We've looked at dozens and dozens and dozens of applications read, well, 85 resumes, watched dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons. We've done interviews. We've done reference checks, multiple interviews, lots of prayer. The elders have looked for Keystone's very best candidate to be Keith's successor. It might be helpful for you to understand how I kind of thought about what an ideal candidate looks like. And we took your concerns back at a congregational meeting back in 2018, probably 2019, of what are we looking for in a preaching pastor? But having, having a, a kind of Venn diagram that looks at the issues of character and chemistry or compatibility and competency to look where is the overlap of a man with character who has the compatibility with Keystone and who's a gifted preacher. The character piece is important because the preaching pastor must meet the qualifications of a New Testament elder. In fact, his witness as an ordinary man and father means more to us in some ways than his ability to witness as a preacher 
We want to see not just a good preacher, but a good man. When it comes to compatibility, we're, we're looking for someone who fits Keystone's unique culture, unique people. Our unique culture in some ways is shaped by our values regarding the scriptures. And our unique culture is developed based on, you know, our unique proclivities, our unique fears, our unique desires, our, our unique hopes for our community. And that's all unique. We want a man, not just who is a good preacher and a good man, but someone who understands our culture. If, if he was a good guy, good preacher, but didn't get along with staff, didn't get along with us as a church, that's not our guy. Lastly, competence. We want a preaching pastor who faithfully exposits the scriptures, who can proclaim the gospel, not just to the mind, but to the hearts of people at Keystone, who can address our unique desires, fears, needs, challenges, proclivities. And so at the end of the day, we are hiring a preaching pastor. He better be able to bring it. And so we looked at all of these candidates and tried to figure out, does he have the character we need? Does he have the compatibility? Does he have the competence? And narrowed that list down. And after Thursday, the elders will be able to unanimously recommend a faithful successor. The third reason that I'm not worried is because I believe we have a faithful congregation. As much as we love Pastor Keith, Keystone knows that Pastor Keith is not our savior. I'd say, I am grateful that we do not have a cult of personality at Keystone. And those churches with celebrity pastors, I don't, I don't envy them they're not going to be able to replicate that man in the next generation. That church might love that man more than they love Jesus. And when that man is no longer there, they're no longer there. Jesus is still going to be here, even if Keith isn't. And I think our church is fine with that. As much as we love Pastor Keith's preaching, I believe it's God's word and not Keith's word that we crave. I know that the number one reason that people have gathered at Keystone over decades is Keith's preaching, but something interesting happened in January, February, March of this past year. For the first time in Keystone's history, Keith, Keith was not in the pulpit for three months. He was down teaching in the Institute class. And we had new people come to Keystone in January, February, March. And I asked them, you know, what, what's brought you here and what's kept you here? And the number one answer that we heard, I love the biblical preaching here. You know what that means? That means that Keith's preaching has influenced Keystone, but it's not exclusive to Keith. That there is a kind of Bible-saturated, gospel-centered, mission-mindedness preaching that can be found outside of Keith. And our congregation wants that. And so I'm confident that you guys will show the grace and patience with a new guy who will pick up the baton and run the same race that Keith was preaching. In fact, we, do, we, need, we, need, we need you to actually do that in order for us to replace Pastor Keith. Our bylaws state that it is the congregation's responsibility uh, to have a 50% quorum and 85% majority vote in order to welcome a new preaching pastor into our church. And as we have that meeting uh, coming up, elders will uh, set that date coming up this Thursday as well before we, and we'll announce it to you. 
But that meeting, you will have the opportunity to have your say on who is our next preaching pastor. And I'm confident that your discernment is part of God's plan to reveal who our next preaching pastor is. Lastly, fourth, why am I not worried? Because we have a faithful shepherd. In fact, if you looked at Keystone's org chart, you're not going to find Pastor Keith at the top. In fact, even though we'd say we're an elder-led church, you're not going to find the elders at the top. And even though for certain big decisions, it's actually the congregation that has the authority to vote yes or no on the direction of where we go, the congregation isn't at the top. The very top of our org chart is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ, our elders, our SLT, our staff, our ministry team leaders, our volunteers. And the thing about Jesus is that he is a good shepherd who needs no successor, who rules and reigns from heaven, who loves Keystone Church more than any of us love Keystone Church, who is going to care for us and provide us and give us everything we need for ministry. Our good shepherd is going to give us what we need to accomplish his good purposes, no matter what challenges await us. And so I want to worship him. And so I conclude this message. Would you pray with me? Father, not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Lord, you've given us this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to you, not us. I ask, Lord, that you would allow us to be faithful stewards of your very grace, that we might preserve your gospel message and mission to the next generation. I pray that our sons, even in their youth, might be like plants, full-grown, mature. I pray that our daughters would be like corner pillars cut for the structure of our palace, strong, beautiful. God, from our youth, you have taught us and we still proclaim your wondrous deeds. We ask, Lord, that even unto old age and gray hair that you will not forsake us until we proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Lord, let it be in Jesus' name. Amen.